Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher. We have an RSS feed for you as well. Uh, find those on asphaltrubber.com. What is Stitcher? Stitcher Stitcher's like another online radio platform. Like SoundCloud. Can, well, kind of like SoundCloud, more like iTunes. Like it's a way to discover okay. radio feeds and things like that. I didn't know about it. Yeah. So now I know. Now you know, and knowing's half the battle. <laughs> so, Quinn, I've I've had the total come down from from Ike when I've caught up on my sleep. We've got those episodes out. If you haven't listened to them already, we cover pretty much everything of note at the show. I wouldn't say we covered everything, but we got a a good spread of things uh, covered on those two shows. And now I think we can get into some some more uh, meatier, esoteric topics about motorcycling, the universe, and everything. Yeah, I look forward to that for sure. Yeah, I mean, I like that stuff, and and I think. I'll, a lot of the listenership does as well, but it can just be almost a, an endless constant. It's like new bike, new bike, new bike, new bike. It's just too much. It's a barrage. It's, yeah. yeah, it's too much. So yeah. it's good for now. Let's let's dig into something interesting that's motorcycle related. For sure. For sure. Why don't we start since I, don't, I have no news basically re- to report because we're going to be kind of in a dearth of yeah uh industry happenings for the next couple months. Uh, other than press launches, we'll have some stuff yeah, to talk about Yeah, I've seen a couple press launches going. Yeah. But... um. I know you've got some news, so why don't you tell our listeners what's going on in your world? Well, I just got a new job. So I'm Congratulations. For uh, the Portland uh, Ducati dealership called Moto Corsa, which is kind of its, uh, its well, it's the largest selling Ducati dealership in uh, North America two years in a row now. So that's a, that's a, a lot of Ducatis. It's 250 plus Ducatis a year out of Portland, Oregon. A lot of Ducatis in an area that I wouldn't say there's not a lot of motorcycling in Portland. There's definitely a lot of motorcycling in Portland, but it's but it's a weird metropolitan to be the number one Ducati dealer in. Yeah, it is. I you know, and there's no one thing. Uh, other, I always, I've always seen though that there's a lot of young money here mm-hmm. from Intel. Which yeah, there might be some codger action going on there, but there's a lot of youthful people that are programming well, you, you, or being part Intel, of that. You got Intel, Google's got a campus here. Nike, you got Nike, yeah. Adidas, and all the feeding from yeah. that, right? Yeah. And the past, well, shoot, I mean, Motocourse has been the top dealer for it multiple times over the course of 10, 15 years. So it's not like it's the a surprise that's just come up, right? Uh, but that's one thing is the youthful. I don't want my dad's Harley type of people that are here. Uh, the riding is fantastic. Even if the, even if the season isn't that long, it's not so Cal, uh, the riding that you get here is amazing. So you can use any one of the machines that that's sold by Ducati or at, at Motocorsa and, uh, go anywhere within a, a thousand miles. You can have a lot of fun. So I think there's that too. Yeah. And there's a great culture of motorcycling in the Northwest vehicles in general, cars and, and motorcycles. There's a, a, a deep culture here. Don't have any particular reason why it's just deep and it's awesome. I can definitely attest to that as a transplant from California. It surprised me how good the motorcycling is up here, especially like Eastern Oregon. There's, there's so many great roads out that way. There's some great roads here in our backyard and um, in the Portland area. And, and I'll be honest, like half the reason I moved up here was because of how strong the motorcycle community was. So yeah, I definitely think it's, it's like the best kept secret in like the, the West coast. Yep. Proud to be part of it. Yeah. So now I'm going to be, uh, managing the pre-owned bikes. So if they sell 250 Ducatis a year, a lot of trade-ins and a lot of purchasing bikes and consignments and whatnot. So I'm the person in charge of that, which is pretty cool. Cause it's outside 
I would say outside of my wheelhouse because I am a technical <laughs> service related person, but that just means I can evaluate by evaluate the bikes and make sure that they get out um, in uh, excellent condition better. I think it'll be good for you because because you're definitely a Ducati guy, and I would say also your background with Yamaha, you're kind of a two brand guy, and now I think it's going to expose you to a lot more brands than you've than you've touched before. Totally, I'm looking forward to that because yeah. I've had to be so Ducati centric for so long. And yeah, I'd had Yamaha experience, but I have a bunch of Hondas. I, I'm I'm a I'm a motorcycle enthusiast before I'm a, a Ducati enthusiast for sure, sure. Sure. So I love it. I love being around all of them. Right. So I'm I'm pretty stoked by that. Good. Well, congratulations on being gamefully employed. Yes. Great. Air high five. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Not too much going on on the news front, but I do want to talk about this upcoming R1 recall. So it's actually a story that we broke on Asphalt and Rubber. I was actually surprised, uh, we're recording now on the weekend, but I was surprised that the week before us, we didn't actually see Yamaha announce it, but uh, the 2015 Yamaha R1 and R1Ms will be uh, getting it. Probably, I don't know how big the, the batch number is going to be for the recall, but some of the units are going to get recalled for issues with the transmission, with the second gear. And, and this will be very interesting to see what, when you say batches, it's like if it's coming right now, if it didn't happen early on, makes you think it's like every single one in the, uh, that's been sold for 2015. Yeah, usually something like this, if it would come out early, that means that they would have found it quickly and and addressed it fairly early, and then that way, okay, we've only got a portion of what has been shipped out. But this late in the game, and I mean, shoot, probably 2016s are either on the boat or already in dealerships, so that's a, it's, it's kind of worrisome. And I wonder how many are out there. Yeah, I don't want to speculate because it's, it's you know, I don't, I don't have enough information. And, and the interesting thing is, um, you know, and I, this is the reason I say, you know, Asphalt never broke the story is because it's not a recall that's registered with NHTSA yet. I've contacted Yamaha and I haven't heard anything back. So I only have the information that my little Bothan spies out there have been feeding me, which, which isn't a ton. It's really just um, kind of what Yamaha is communicating uh, internally. And, you know, so I don't know, because usually when you go to like NHTSA's website, when there's a recall, there's a bunch of documents that uh, are added to uh, the recall notice that people can look at and they can say, oh, well, we found this, you know, in this dealership and it was backed up by things that were found in this dealership. And in total, we found 20 of these bikes in the wild, but we suspect 200 bikes might be affected. We're going to recall 300 to be safe. And that gives you an idea of what's going on. We don't have those kind of documents right now or that kind of information to, to really say it could be three bikes it could be 300 it could be 3000 well do you want uh, to talk about how that works with nitsa now or do you want to yeah why don't we why don't we get into um well why don't we talk about the r1 recall okay and what that means and maybe you can explain like technically what's going on then get we can get into, into the nitsa okay. side of it so you know it, it's interesting um and i'm gonna i'm gonna lean on your mechanical sure. knowledge because i read this stuff and i don't really know what's going on that's that's the extent of my core competency right so when they say Something like the second gear wheel and pinion gears. What is that? All right. So uh, a motorcycle, all, all modern motorcycles have essentially the same type of transmission. We call it a cassette. Um, and it, the, it the, there's a shaft that is turned by a primary gear off the crankshaft. goes through a clutch. So when you let your clutch lever out, it binds that shaft to the primary gear which is in turn turning from the crankshaft so crankshaft power goes to the primary gear goes to the clutch the clutch then uh, feeds the main shaft and the main shaft 
uh, has a bunch. The, the main shaft go, goes through. Uh, it's so difficult to describe this in a in a, in a uh, right. <laughs> I can't imagine without having to, to be able. So it's this a is going to be interesting. Kind of thing, right? So uh, there's a bunch of gears on these shafts. One of them on on both the main shaft and the counter shaft. So the counter shaft is the second shaft it goes through, and that's when you hear counter shaft sprocket. That's the sprocket that goes to your final drive that goes all the way to your rear wheel on on a. That's on, that's the front sprocket the chain goes exactly. Around. That yeah. is a that's on a chain driven bike. That is your that that that's the counter shaft uh, uh, that's running from the main shaft. So there's two shafts running uh, parallel to each other, and they have this set of gears on them. And if you saw this all together, it would look like how the hell does that work? Because all the get all the gears are meshed together already. And uh, it takes dogs and slots on the sides of the gears that run uh, basically axially to engage with each other to change the gear ratio. So all these gears are meshed together. In a six-speed transmission, you'd look at the two shafts and you'd see all the, all the gears all in mesh. And you're like, how the heck can that possibly work? Well, mo a lot of the gears are spinning freely and they're only... Um, they're they're only driving if they have been uh, uh, meshed together with these dogs and slots that are axially axially not radially placed on the gears, and they are moved by something called a shift fork. Uh, most transmissions have three shift forks, and the shift forks are actuated by a shift drum. The drum looks like a it's a, a it's a it's a cylinder that has a bunch of squiggly lines on it, and those squiggly lines, when you are actually literally shifting your shift lever. Uh, there's a mechanism that uh, turns that drum up or down. When you do up or down on with your foot, it's turning that. Uh, so it's taking reciprocating motion and turning into rotational motion. And that is in turn shifting the forks, which then moves the gears on the shafts. Some of the gears are splined to the shaft and move side to side. Some of the gears are freewheeling. Uh, and a couple of them are actually built into the shaft itself for strength. Um, and that depends on the transmission and the manufacturer. So in this case, what it sounds like Yamaha's found is that a couple of their gears are uh, failing over time. And a gear is an incredibly intricate, nuanced piece. Gears, you look at it, it has teeth. It's round, it has teeth. You think, well, shoot, gears have been around for a very long time. What, what can possibly go wrong? It, it's in, it gets very deep into the nuances of the root of the, of the tooth and the mesh of the teeth as they come together and how that power, because you're talking about quite a lot of torque gets transferred through these little things, and they're essentially just a bundle of levers. It's a very strange thing to think about, but when you think of a gear, sure. it's a lever, it's right? A lever it's, a, it's, a, it's a round lever. So it, there's, there's a lot of torque getting transmitted through these things, especially in the lower gears, Right. Um, and that can be, uh, uh, problematic, uh, for, for transmissions cause they're usually suffering at the hands of people that don't really care what is inside that engine, uh, you, you know, moving them forward. So in this case, it sounds like if, if you do some ham fisted shifting, uh, or are abusive to the transmission in some way, um, that the the gears themselves might be disintegrating or the dogs and slots that are the axial um, power transmission are, are uh, fracturing and or failing in some way or causing, causing the transmission to go into false neutrals or, frankly, in this case, because it's insinuated this is a recall, that means it's insinuated it's a safety issue. Um, 
it makes me wonder if their things aren't breaking, which can then very easily turn into a seized transmission. So if you break a tooth off or a piece of a gear more than a tooth and it gets lodged into this mesh of gears, it will lock up the rear wheel, right? Uh, if if the dogs and slots get rounded off. And I should say, when it locks the rear wheel, there's nothing that pulling the clutch in can do for you. No. Yeah, well, yeah, very, yeah, exactly. You know, because that's one of the yeah, things like exactly. you see like in the TT and the road racer guys, they, they always keep a finger on their clutch or that's that's the... That's a holdover from two-stroke days because if you right. seized the, the piston crankshaft camshaft area or in a two-stroke, the piston and the crankshaft, you could pull in the clutch and then the power that would be going through to the transmission is no longer there because the clutch is kept keeping it from going to the rear wheel, right? Right. So if you seize the engine, it doesn't lock the rear wheel up. But if you don't get your finger on the clutch fast enough, it spits you right off. Right. But in this case, it's a total, absolute failure if a gear piece falls off into the transmission. Nothing a rider could do about it. No, no. no skill in the world. No. I mean, I can't imagine the slipper clutch even... Even working now, yeah, it would be. It would be. It, it has nothing to do even with the slipper. It's it's funny to think about. Sure, it's nope. after the clutch. Yeah, it's after completely. So in this case, who knows? But it, you know, what I was uh, gonna say is the dogs and slots when they get rounded off. If you lose lo- lose your ability to to shift uh, solidly, and it pops in and out of gear, yeah, that might be a safety issue. But frankly, that's that's consumer made usually, right? That would be something that uh, the human that's riding the bike has screwed up. And, uh, yeah, it might pop into neutral, but that's not necessarily a complete loss of control of power. And that's not the fault of the manufacturer. That's not a defect in, in materials or works, workmanship unless it can be proven that they used uh, poorly heat-treated metal or right. something like that. Right. So I doubt that that's the case. It happens quite frequently, but, I mean, not it, 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 that type of failure hasn't been a common thing probably since the... I don't know, even the 90s. There would only be a, a few certain bikes that you knew, okay, the second gear is going to go out on that thing because the dogs and slots are going to go, right? And I can't even name them. You, you can name it. would be a Honda this or a Jixer that or a Yamaha this, but it really, most of the time, that would boil down to incompetent riders doing stupid shit, right? So in this case, who knows? If, if Yamaha is taking their flagship machine and having to replace more than one gear, yeah, that's a tough one. Could it be a, uh, a bad heat treatment? Possibly. Could it be bad design? Yeah, well, th- what do you consider bad? This is a racing intent motorcycle. Everything is made to be as light as it possibly can be, right? Light to a point can equal less strong, right? So uh, that's that's what the wonder is, is like when the, when they do replace the gears or whatever they're going to do, mm-hmm. uh, is it going to be a heavier gear? And if so... How could that have possibly left the design board and gone into production with even the slightest hint of possibility of failure? Because this is such a a, a high level failure, right? Because it can result in injury or death, right? Right. So well, that's, that's why I say it's 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 hard to speculate because there's there's a lot of variables there. It was it um you know was the heat treating not done correctly for a certain batch? Is it a design failure? You know, there's so many things that could go wrong in that process that could affect or, or, or could result in a different number of bikes being affected or, sure. or a different degree. Right. If they had a batch number for the gears sure. and, and Yam, believe me, they do. Yamaha yeah. does. They know that this amount of gears went into this amount of bikes and they would know the VIN that started and the VIN that it ended. Right. If there was a bad batch and they knew, okay, we, that we've, we have done a metallurgical examination of the failed, um, gears. We've all isolated that these these failures that we've seen in the field have come from this batch. We know that that batch uh, has been 
poorly heat treated, right? Yeah. And heat treatment is so critical on these things. Absolutely. Unreal how critical. Of course, the the material in the first place is critical, but what you do to it to make it last is especially with gears. Holy crap, is it a complicated thing? And even even locally, we have a we were having them made gears were being made for Moto Sis. Uh, down south of town in a place called Albany. We got to watch this this process at a gear manufacturing facility called Lynn Gear. Unreal amazing to watch. An induction, uh, basically a, a gear spinning with a coil of electricity around it and then being quenched in a fluid all in one fell swoop. It was a fascinating thing to see. Hmm. So that I can just imagine how many different failure modes they would have to uh, uh, see uh, as a manufacturer over the years, but it's not something that's been common. So to see this coming from Yamaha, frankly, just tells me, and this is, this is my gut feeling, is that they tried to make it lighter and faster because they need to to be competitive, and they went too far. Usually you have a safety factor of four with components like that. That means you make the component four times better than what it would need to be to be uh to 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 fail right and that that's that's a common thing in in uh uh the airplane in the uh, yeah in the airplane industry and and for the most part uh, uh, vehicles like this you just have that safety factor of overbuilt pieces right then you get into like super race bikes like my Honda RS125 there's probably a, a significant less uh, safety factor in that because it's made to be light and fast, right? right? Right. But not for consumer use. So very interesting stuff. It'd be fascinating to see how, not only what they do to address it, but how they address it once it's like, well, are they going to replace engines? Absolutely. See, and that's something I want to I I get to um, in this discussion. I mean, I, you know, we're taking one topic and kind of doing a deep dive, but I think it touches on a lot of different things that... Uh, go on behind the scenes and then also go on on the consumer side that I think we should shed some light on. Uh, the only thing I wanted to talk about real quick before we move forward is, you know, we talk about gears and we talk about like, it's a simple machine. It's one of the, the yep. however many simple machines there are levers, pulleys, yeah, sure. gears, one of them. And you think about like, Oh, it's just this, this basic thing. Well, you know, you think about it a little bit further though, like this is something like the Swiss have made an entire industry around on making gears for watches, this intricate, you know, these teeth that fit in perfectly with each other. And you start thinking about the speeds of rotation that go on in a motorcycle engine and the, the level of precision that's required for, a, you know, a transmission gears to, to, to line up and mesh and not have uh, wiggle room or have certain tolerances for longevity. I mean, it's, it's extremely complicated when you start thinking about the physics sure. of it. Yeah. It's impressive. I it's extremely impressive that you can spin – you know, a, a liter bike engine, you know, up to 15,000 RPMs or whatever the red line is for an R1 now. Uh, Yet, strangely, a lot of the, 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 a lot of the problems occur at low RPM with, with high torque loads, right? So when you're spinning the thing and you shift from fifth to sixth, those, those gears are barely, you know, you'd have to put a, it'd be interesting to get the calculation of how much force is on those gears, but it's nothing compared to first and second, right. like nothing, barely even registers. Well, you mean, think about, think about the gear ratios, right? Exactly. That's, that's the interesting part, right. especially like for, for six gear, it's an overdriven gear. Yep. So, so it's just kind of like, man, I'm hanging out, hey I'm guys, getting you down the road and nice, comfortable and you know, you're getting good gas mileage, man. Right? Got a lemonade. He's just hanging right. out. And what, one, one, <laughs> so that's, so it's a weird, th overdrive is a concept I think I would probably be best to to read through something before I t comment on it too deep, but I'll say this. Overdrive generally means that that gear would not get you to top speed. The gear before it would. So 
say in a six-speed transmission, if the sixth is considered overdrive, if you tried to go top speed with that, it wouldn't reach it. It would be over the, the, the threshold, whereas the fifth gear and the ratio would stay within the power band of the bike and get you faster. Right. So that that's a bit confounding for, for to think about. But that's that's the truth. And most motorcycles, we don't have that because the bikes will pull their sixth gear all the way. Uh, but when you hear the thing overdrive uh, and that happens in cars a lot. Well, I, I should say that the technical definition of an overdriven gear is a gear that spins at a ratio higher than. Yeah. The okay. Crankshaft. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good that's a good. That's a good thing. The, to look the, ra up the ratio, the gear ratio is higher than one, one to one. Yeah, that's probably a technical. Yeah, that's probably the technical description. But that's that's why I say I almost. You're, I you're describing I, the practical side of it, right? That's that's what I'm trying to say. Right. So, okay. So there's that, and and there, there's different gears and different systems in bikes. So we're talking about a transmission transmitting power uh, to the rear wheel. The other gear systems that we see in motorcycles are often cam drives, right? So uh, on four-stroke engines, you're driving camshafts, whether it be uh, and it's mostly uh, overhead cams in, in motorcycle world, uh, single overhead cam, double overhead cam. And there are different drive mechanisms. There are belts for Ducatis. A lot of Ducatis use belts, um, which is a, just a Gates belt, you know, probably about half an inch to an inch wide, uh, depending on the, on the vehicle. Not an inch, but, you know, it's close enough. So they drive from the crankshaft, uh, from an idler gear up to uh, the cam gears, and very rarely do you see gear-driven cams. It's very expensive to manufacture, uh, but it's, it's it's exacting. So uh, that that's not something you, you see that often, but that is a failure mode on certain gear drive systems. Uh, the other way is chains, right? That's the most common. So any GSX-R1000, any Honda 1000, any Kawasaki, that's available for consumers that is driven by a, a very specific type of chain. It doesn't look like the chain that's on the back of your bike with rollers. It's called a high chain and there's stamp steel plates and it's a, it's fairly intricate. Uh, but they're, they're good at carrying that particular load because you're, you're actually having to overcome the, um, the force of springs at different, uh, um, all, all at different points in the rotation of the crankshaft. Uh, the Ducati Panigale actually has a roller chain that drives, up to a gear system. It's a hybrid. Uh, TL, Suzuki TL has had a similar system. TL 1000, um, I think it was just the R, but it might have been the S as well. Back, it, There's a few bikes out there that have a, a hybrid chain to gear drive. The, the reason why you'd have that is because the gear, you can get the cam timing exactly, set it, and never have to worry about it because it's always going to be the same because it's a gear drive. And it just transmit it, transmits it so well with very little uh, drag. Right. So right. from a power standpoint, less mechanical. Exactly. Loss. So yeah. uh, back in the you know 90s, they were uh, Muzzy was putting uh, Muzzy's Kawasaki was a, a world championship level racing team out of Bend, Oregon. They were they were putting gear driven cam, uh, cam sets, uh, the gear sets into the engines that were built for uh, for chains, which was an amazing thing. Right. But that was what they were doing. The win world superbike races which was right. pretty cool. So th those things are, are failure modes that can happen. It would happen on Ducati Desma Sidichis. If you don't get the tolerance stack up right, we're talking about multiple gears going up from the crank to the cams. It can, it can cause all kinds of problems. Well, that's funny because this is actually a, this is like a prelude to a segue I want to make. But talking about the gear-driven cams, it was funny when the RSV4 came out, there was a gear-driven uh, cam system you could buy from Aprilia racing it was like fifty thousand sure. dollars but because it was in the catalog and all that then Aprilia's world superbike team could 
make that modification yep. to their bike and then race yep. it obviously at the world superbike level and then lo and behold max biage wins the world championship with it and it would be notable at, at higher pm especially right because right? it's exponential how much right. something like that would drag they would probably be making 10 percent more horsepower with that if my memory serves me right and you know definitely call me out if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure it was such an advantage that the fim kind of went to aprilia and was like guys really sorry like really can't, like can't do that like everything you're doing is legal but it'd be really nice if you stopped. And I want to say the next season they yeah. pulled that system out or they pulled it off the, the catalog. But it was definitely something that was that was present at they the They were totally taking the piss putting that out there. Now, if they would have come up with that and it was a drop-in 5000 bucks or something, which sounds obnoxious, but really that would be awesome and cheap, uh, then I could see it. But we're talking about a company that just released the, what is it, 230 horsepower that we were talking about last yeah. week. Yeah, for the RFW hundreds. Masano. It's going to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm right? still waiting to hear the price on that. I don't think it's going to be obnoxiously priced like the, the Honda RC213VS. <sighs> Hold on, I got I to gotta catch my breath after saying that. I'm sweating think, over here. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be as, uh, as, as high of a price as that. But it's definitely, yeah, I think you're going to be spending at least 80000 and that's part uh, of the cost. That's part of the cost. It's really gnarly because it's yeah. not just gears. You have to have a compliant element gear in there. And I, I can't even get into that. Well, that'll go off on another. It's, uh, there's so many complicated, nuanced things that, that need to go into one of those. It's not something you're going to do in your garage on a Friday afternoon. It could be. That's the funny part. Not for me, it's not. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> in my head, I'm like, tire? oh, I could totally drop in some. <laughs> yeah, I'd be good to go. Let's get, set the cam timing. I'm gonna. We're gonna do a podcast on showing you how to do cam oh, timing sometime. No. That'll that'll blow your freaking mind. Yeah. Okay. So back to gears. Yeah. That, so there's more than one type of thing we're talking about when we're talking about gears and motorcycles. I just wanted to get that out of there. Yeah. Right. So so getting back to the R1. What do you look at, especially so you have the background as being a, a regional service rep for Ducati. So you've, you've dealt with recalls a little yeah, bit and, know, and kind of know what the, the situation is. What do you think the solution that Yamaha will put forward for this? All right. So that, is, is that going to be like an like they're going to swap engines? Are they going to have mechanics at dealerships ugh. digging into the transmissions? Yeah. Is it going to be, you know, what, what level of involvement? It do you depends think? on it depends on the manufacturer, right? This could be a hideously expensive thing if they decide. So worst case scenario, it's every R1 that they shipped out in 2015. Which okay. was a lot. Worst case scenario. So let's let's guess. Is that five to 10,000 bikes? Thousands of motorcycles. So if you had to swap out the engine on thousands of motorcycles, you have just erased the profit and or cost probably double because you have to pay a technician to remove and reinstall the engine on at, at dealerships across the country and that you have to pay in most cases uh, uh retail uh for that right you can't you can't just go in and say well i'm gonna have you do this but i'm only gonna pay you you know x amount of money to do this right they're gonna come up with some sort of scheme to make it uh cheaper they're gonna try but to bottom line is no matter which way you look at it, it's gonna be very expensive well, then what do they do with the rest of those engines? They just take them back and scrap them, right? They're going to have to create engines. I, I don't know if that would be the thing uh, at, with this amount of, uh, of vehicles that are affected. In the past, with things like this, we'd have to see the last time there was a big Yamaha recall. But I'll remember going into Yamaha dealerships within the past five years where they're they have this gigantic V-twin engine thing. And I can't remember what the if it was a Warrior, uh, but I think it was a 1,400cc V-twin. 
and it had problems with second gears. And I don't know if this was a recall, but I remember going into many dealerships where uh, some technician was knee deep in the muck of one of these things, replacing gears, right? That was, you know, piecemeal. They would pick and choose which ones. And, you know, maybe it was only once it was failing. I don't know. In a recall scenario, they have to come up with an, uh, an exact amount of bikes with a, with a VIN range. And that is what NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, will force them to do. That means that they're going to have to check every single one of them. Well, how do you check a transmission that's bolted inside the engine case? You, there's no other way but to take it apart. So I, it, there's a possibility to say, well, we're going to have these gears magnafluxed. Magnaflux is a, uh, is, a, is a way to check for cracks. You could have to send them to a, a, a shop that does a dye uh, they they put a uh, uh, a day glow dye into a, a fluid and they dip the gear and then they look at it with a black light. Uh, they who knows there could be very many different things that they would do to say okay this this doesn't have it. But by the time you've done that, you might as well have just swapped the engine or just replaced the parts, right? So you don't even you don't even have to think about it. You just replace the parts. Well, in this case, then you're going to pay technicians to not just swap engines, but to take an engine out, take the bottom end of it apart change the gears and put it back together. That could be a 10-hour job. It could be a 15-hour job. I, I don't know with a Yamaha or one. I doubt it's that, uh, that labor-intensive. I've watched uh, technicians have to do this at Graves Yamaha on R1s in the mid-2000s, and, of course, we could do it fairly quickly. But we lunched transmissions, I wouldn't say quite often, but it would happen more than you would think uh, because the gears on those bikes were gigantic and heavy and gnarly. And when something went wrong, they would go wrong big time and they would never blow up to lock up an engine, but the, the dogs and slots that I was talking about earlier, the things that would round off and make it pop out of gear, that would happen quite often, especially say in the case of Eric Bostrom coming off of a superbike Ducati or superbike Kawasaki that had lightened, uh, very specific transmissions that he could click and click and click through the gears and never have any problem. When he got, he, when he got on the, the Yamaha super stock bike, which was stock transmissions, he had some issues, man. He would, he would blow through trannies. It was gnarly. Jason DeSalva didn't have this problem. Jamie Hacking didn't have this problem. Damon Buckmaster didn't. But you get a guy that was used to sure. just click, 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 and then right into the gear. He would never have these, this issue. But we would have to do this. The engine would come out. It would get flipped over. You wouldn't have to take up the top end. You would take off the bottom end. You'd get to the gear set. You'd take it out. It's not easy. It's not um, the same as a true cassette transmission, which comes out the side of an engine. Uh, the MV Agustas have that. Uh, a couple other other vehicles have come out with with cassette style transmissions where you can basically unbolt the tranny from the side of the bike after you take the clutch out or you know some uh, one of the engine covers off and you can get to it pretty quickly. Well, in this case, I'm I don't recall seeing that that's part of the the design scheme for an R1, which means engine out. Or they come up with some weird solution where you leave the engine inside the frame and you drop the oil pan and I don't I mean I can't. I don't know, but that'll be the interesting thing to see how they do this. And how, how will customers view that? Sure. Like their engine was assembled and when, when what they think and their perception by exacting perfection type of people in Japan and the, do they want the local guy at the dealership who frankly is probably better to do it because he's going to be very meticulous and very thorough when he does this because he's freaked out because he's having to take apart an engine. 
but that freaks people out. They don't want to think about that. They are not, they're right. not sure. So there would probably be 50% of the people that know their Yamaha technician and be like, oh yeah, go ahead, do it. Yeah, Joe, Joe's going to do my engine. Joe's Joe does awesome, great work. right? Yeah. So Joe's all about it. Or there's going to be the other half that don't know and they're like, Why? no, I want a new engine, right meow. Mm-hmm. All right? And it's like, well, hell, sorry, they don't get to dictate what they get. The, the manufacturer does, right. right? So if somebody made enough of a squeaky squeaky wheel thing maybe the manufacturer would relent but then they if they have to do it for one they have to do it for everybody right and i would imagine since you've been on this side of it the 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 service rep or whomever for for yamaha who makes that decision is probably going to get a boatload of pushback from yamaha usa for being the 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 nail that's higher than the rest so you get hammered down and then yamaha japan goes yamaha usa why are you letting them why are you letting that guy do that no that would be a customer service deal because the guy that would be in my position as a service rep will just say no, period. Yeah. It it they they were being giving a protocol. That's it. We are going to change okay. these transmission gears, period. Uh you're not getting a new engine. Uh we're gonna but maybe that what they do is add value and say we're gonna give you a warranty on the drivetrain of this bike for two years or something obnoxious or even a year from the date that it happened. Right. Well that's something I want to get into. I want to get into um before we, before we get too far, I want to eventually get to talking about what uh, manufacturers do to mitigate these sort of things. But but before we get into that, though, I want to bring up the point that when the RSV4, and this is why I was saying, you know, a segue that's coming up, when the RSV4 came out, it had connecting rod oh, issues. Oh, yeah, man. You know. Engines out. But we're talking about tens of bikes, right? Maybe well, hundreds. Yeah, hundreds. Like like 200-ish, But maybe. they figured out a way to do it because we're not talking 10,000 bikes, right? right? And, that, and that's the thing. I couldn't find the number, but it's, I, I want to say it's around like 14,000 bikes, um, so yeah, I mean, for Yamaha, for Yamaha, but where Aprilia, for, for Aprilia, it's probably a couple hundred. It was it. And, yeah. and the dealerships were seriously swapping engines or there, in some cases there, there, there were people coming in from Italy. Or yeah, I want to say, I want to say the, the engines all got pulled out and they were dropped in like some warehouse. Some guys from Italy came, did all the work. Engines got shipped back. For a lot of them, but some of them, including some of the dealers that I was dealing with, yeah. uh, not long after that. Had engines sitting in their, you know, crates were were sitting in the dealerships because they had swapped them, which made sense. There's nothing wrong with that, but those bikes and those engines are very specific. Right? Well, and that's the thing, uh, you know, that's interesting for me with like a legal perspective. So, like for me and and a business perspective as well. Like, okay, so you have the dealer, you have Joe, the the mechanic at the dealership. He comes and does the work. Well, now you've created this kind of liability situation where, well, did Joe do the job right? Now the bike breaks a year from now. Maybe Yamaha gave nah, a warranty. That's part of the not. dealer. That's part of your dealer agreement. You signed up to be a dealer. Part of the agreement to be a dealer is that you will service these vehicles uh, at a at a top level, right? So when you signed on, that is part of it. Part and parcel of being part of it is that you should be able to disassemble and reassemble any motorcycle that you are selling as a dealer and put it back together and have it perfect. I'm just saying as a consumer, you can make that stink of like, well, you know, my dealership worked on it. You know, they did the work. They don't do, there's this perception that they don't do as good of a job as the factory. It's not a factory engine anymore. It's a dealer engine and there's a difference there. And the value of my bike has been dropped because of it. And maybe there's a mechanical issue and an injury involved. Like, like the, the lawyer in me can say like, I can make a stink about that. I could bet I can convince 13 people in a jury that there's a difference there. The lawyer. And you could do that with anything though. That's the problem with lawyers. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but my point is that from, from a cost point of view and from just like a legal liability or a legal exposure point of view, there is some value. I I think of just saying like it's just easier to swap an engine it's just saying like okay here's a factory fresh engine we pop it in we give you a one-year warranty on it done and dusted like that engine was just as good of an engine that came from the factory it was made on the same assembly line 
you know, we, we covering our, our crossing our I's and dotting our T's. Oh, good so to go. uh, from a practical standpoint, yeah, I get it. But think about this. Each engine has a number and depending on the state, that number has to follow the bike and it can be very difficult to swap that in paperwork. Really difficult in mm. some states. Can't remember what California is, but I'm pretty sure you have to have an engine number in California. And I'm pretty sure the bulk of everybody's sport bikes are sold in California. Like a like a, a percentage, at least for Ducati, a was lot of 40% the R ones end up in of Ducatis are yeah. sold in California. So that alone creates a very big nightmare. Can you imagine saying, okay, we're going to make 14,000 engines? Ah, it's not even plausible. It's not even plausible. I, I guess it could, uh, anything can happen, but holy crap, I can't imagine that. And then having to restamp each one, sending the, the dealership that sold the bike, the proper engine that's stamped with the same engine number, or sending a specific set of engine stamps to the technicians so that they could half-hastedly, you know, stamp engines with, you know, hand tools. Oh, I can't imagine how that would work because that would be that part of it. And in, in the cases, once you're split, you can't just put the bottom end. Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm trying to get this through this in my head, how that could possibly work. Well, I think we have a big part of it too is going to be, I think a big part of it too is going to be how many bikes we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. If you're talking about- 500 bikes, swap the engines. And then what do you do with the engines? Ah, I'm sure Yamaha figured out, you know, they could probably the- take them back, but Imagine how expensive that would be to have them disassembled and use the parts again. They probably just crush them. That's that's how gnarly it is. That, right? that, well, that, and that's the other part. That's that's the other legal side of it. Where from a legal liability, you crush them just so those parts don't get out in the space. So you so no one can come back and say, "Hey, I ended up with a crankshaft from a recalled R1. You can't prove to me, or you know, I suppose that there is damage from whatever was going on came in and did that. You can't prove otherwise. So I get my lawsuit. It's almost easier just to crush it and say that." That part no longer exists. And that's exists. what would normally happen with recall parts in general. So if, I don't know if this is the right segue, but anytime there's a recall on a bike, let me use an example of a few years ago, there was Monster, I th- believe it was Monster 796s and 1100s had rear wheels that were found to be defective in some way, right? And we had to replace the rear wheels, right? They they had And, and they, their explanation was they had found Ducati in their testing high... Um, high mileage testing of a rear wheel that some stress fracture came somewhere and they had, they never saw one in the, in the space. Right. Oh God, I, I remember this recall right. now. And I call it, I say in the space, somebody said we were saying in the space too much. So, right. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Um, uh, so yes, that recall was fairly simple. You have to take the wheels. We had to destroy them. Right. Well, you had to cut the, the spokes. You do something, or right. Something. We destroy would drill the them, yeah. the sledgehammer, literally slice and dice them. I, as a fun exercise, took a belt, uh, a, 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 I don't know if you want to, what, what do you call it? It was a belt, not a belt sander, but a, almost like a jigsaw and sliced them in, in sections. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Well, the cool. jigsaw has, it's, the, it's a belt though. Yeah. The, the blade's a belt. It's so big. Yeah. My, my brain is completely farting. Anyway, that was really fun because I enjoyed destroying shit. As, as painful as it was to take a sledgehammer to a fuel tank or, you know, take a, a saw to something or, you know, sometimes, uh, as you remember, uh, uh, you know, a Ruger mini 14 to a <laughs> Diavel frame, they make good target practice, right? It's, it's fun stuff. <laughs> right. So I enjoyed that. It was catharsis for me. I'm like, get in rid of this. So yeah, it, you, if you, if you have a recall part, you have to destroy it, right? right. You cannot leave the dealership. Uh, and in most cases we would require that the dealerships keep the parts. 
for us as the regional reps to destroy. Sometimes, like in the case of a, a 1098 rear sprocket rear call, where there were some sprockets that were cracked, and this is early 2007, maybe 2008, I can't recall. I can't recall. Get it? Uh, uh, they, they, those. We would eventually would just say, just keep those and, and make sure to d- dispose of them, right? But that's a big problem. Imagine somebody saying, "Oh, this looks like a perfectly good sprocket. I'm going to use this on my blankety blank." There it goes, crack, and boom, you're down and you're dead, and that's you know who, whose responsibility is. Well, it was whoever's responsibility it was to throw it away, right? right? And if it's part of the recall that says dealership must throw away this part or destroy it in some way, then that's I, you know, that's an interesting legal issue is like, well, and whose responsibility was it? Was the manufacturers to come and make sure to double check that it's destroyed? Or are we just assuming that the, the technician was able to throw it away in such a way that it couldn't get into the wrong hands? Right. So that's definitely something that happens, but not that common because there's not that many people that are ma- not many recalls with structural components. It's not that common. That one with the rear wheel on the Ducati was bizarre. Right, we no, we'd never seen a failure since. We'd never right. seen a failure up to that point. And fair to point out, that's not even like really Ducati's fault. That's whoever the wheels. It was Anki, maybe. I I can't remember who the manu. But it was it was great that they. It was a preemptive strike. So in this case with the Yamaha, have you heard of a Yamaha transmission blowing up? So when I did my research on this, the only instances that I could find were uh, race bikes. Right, but that's racing. So, but you know? but maybe that's the thing, and maybe this is where Yamaha is being, you know. Uh, a good uh a good manufacturer to say Absolutely. hey we're seeing this in our race bikes we so we investigate why is this happening in our race bikes huh okay maybe there's there's actually something here with the heat treatment or maybe there's a yep. tolerance issue that it's actually in all these bikes and we're just not seeing it yet because they haven't done enough miles or there yep. hasn't been enough so the takeaway from that yeah. for me is e- either way whatever's happening the takeaway is that if i haven't heard of one on a street bike yeah racing happens but you know what if racers don't have any mechanical sympathy. If they're any good at what they do, they don't have shit for mechanical sympathy. That thing that they're on is a tool to get them around that right. track fastest, period, right? I remember so, having a good conversation about that with Michael Sizz at Laguna Seca when he was racing his electric bike. And he was saying, like, well, maybe this is the last year I do it because I, I have too much emotional investment in this. I, I know how much time and energy and money it costs to build this bike, and I don't want to see it crash, whereas, like, you get someone else uh on board with it sure um put steve rap on the mission and there he went in no fucks given right so, excuse my language and goes fast so same goes for any race bike period red mist rules that's why no manufacturer warranties anything on a racetrack that even if you've clicked it in the gear on the line and then you stop you have you have voided your warranty as as a race bike right so that's across the board. I don't know any manufacturer that, that stands behind a vehicle that has been put on a racetrack. So for me, if the, if the transmissions had failed in the racing, I'd be like, yeah, well, that happens. Parts need to get lifed out. If you're properly racing, you have a certain amount of life uh, mileage, and we would do this at Graves. The The transmissions were kilometered out. We call it kilometered out because we because we had been given from Yamaha strict guidelines on your chains need to go this far. Your wheels go this far. Your brake rotors go this far. Your transmissions go this far. Your cylinder heads go this far, right? That is it. You don't go any further than that because then it'll fail and it'll fail in front of people. And then our advertising, all this that we put in the advertising has gone right out the window. I think that brings up a great point and reminded me of something I wanted to talk about from earlier. Proper race teams, professional race teams have those maintenance schedules, have those part life schedules as a part of their documentation. It's right up there with 
you know, the suspension setup at Hareth versus suspension setup Absolutely. at Valencia. It was on your on your worksheet that right. you had on your clipboard when you were taking times with a rider. Each lap you put in because you were you were figuring out how many miles were on your rotors, right? Right. right. Just as any true production motorcycle manufacturer, any motorcycle manufacturer that that is calling that model a production model, any true production bike will have that history of these ro- the brake rotors that went on it came from this batch from this supplier yeah. these bolts came from this supplier with this tolerance for on this date in the shipment and so that's how they can come back and say hey you know our wheel supplier says that there's a stretch fracture that's developing after a hundred thousand kilometers it came but it was only on you know wheels that we made from these dates and the manufacturer can then go and say oh that affects these vin numbers that these bikes built on these days that's what a real production manufacturer looks like and i think that's interesting because sometimes you see in the space, some of these smaller manufacturers are like, oh, it's a production bike. Now, you know, we're ready for production. And it's like, you you don't know what that means because you can't tell Not me. Not even close. You don't even yeah. know if, if Olin's calls you up and says, hey, how many bikes got these forks? We found a defect in them. You wouldn't have a freaking clue because you haven't done the miles and thousands of tons of paperwork that's involved in it being a true and that's part production of due facility. diligence now Absolutely. that is due diligence as a manufacturer and it has to be i mean i put the, the the libertarian in me says well sorry buyer beware you should you know you're you're buying an inherently unstable incredibly dangerous machine but the warrior in you is like no way this needs to be a consumer ready product and uh, and as safe as possible right i like to think of myself as a pragmatist because like definitely like tort law is is Interesting. In American tort law, especially with product liability, it's retorted. It's, it's 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 unlike anywhere else in the world in the sense of what we've what we've carved out legally. And some of it, I think, does go too far. Like, do you really need to have a warning on a plastic bag because you know kid might put it over his head? The reason there is that warning, of course, is because someone actually did that. Because we're in an idiocracy. That's why there is some of that. But then there's some of them where like it actually it absolutely makes sense to me. And and you have to protect the consumer to a certain point because capitalism left to itself will not do that no. i'm a firm believer no, in that. i'm a social right. i'm enough of a socialist i, that I, can I see am that. too and i know you're right but one of the things i want to get back into is is how a manufacturer comes to the decision to to make a recall what's okay. involved with that decision process this so, maybe is a good one. so we'll use an example this is an interesting one as many years ago there was a recall on olin's fork bottoms i i can't remember exactly i'm pretty sure it was 1198 and 1098 uh, street fighter s's uh, these are all S models that had Olin's forks, of course. So most Olin's forks that are coming on production bikes are from a place in Japan called Soki. I believe it's spelled S O Q I. Uh, and there had been a bad, uh, heat treatment or a bad, uh, uh, aluminum something or other on the fork bottoms for that bike. Well, they f- found this out because the clamp bolts were, there was a crack developing on the aluminum part at where the, the clamp bolts were. And this was happening often enough that they decided to do a recall. So they did a recall. It was judged at that time as a safety problem, that if those, if the crack develops, then you know there, there's a chance that there's going to be loss control, that, that something will yield, and that there will be a loss in control of the motorcycle and, and, and thus uh, uh, death or dismemberment or something that's safety. So it's safety-related, right? So th- that recall went through. The forks were soft. There it is. It's all done. Nobody ever got hurt. There was never any problem. It was just there was plenty of examples in the field that they were cracked, but it was dealt with. Right. Many years later, a similar thing happened on Multistrada 1200s. I can't remember the year, but I'm pretty sure it was 11 and 12, maybe 10, 11 and 12. 
They had the similar thing. Of course, just like you were saying earlier, there was a batch number. They knew exactly which VINs were, were, were needed to be at least looked at. There was a process to, for, for verifying it. And there was a process of just swapping it if it was uh, uh, out inside, the, inside the VIN range. If it was out of the VIN range and it got cracked, holy crap, that, and that created a lot of other uh, paperwork to be done as well because that was like, oh, that shouldn't happen, right? But the interesting thing is that wasn't a recall. And that blew those of us that were in it, uh, blew our minds. It was a technical service bulletin. The interesting thing was Ducati was able to show NHTSA clearly. NHTSA being the National, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Of, uh, so we haven't even got to that point. This is the pers- this is the entity, the, the large red tape spewing entity that makes sure the vehicles that we drive, whether it be cars uh, or motorcycles or Segways, who knows? I don't know what what their scope is, but basically anything that you can put a license plate on. So maybe not Segways. Not Segways, but, but, not but definitely would get the Polaris slingshot in there. Okay, slingshot, sure. Uh, three-wheeled cars, absolutely. So that's a National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is the, the, the thing that says this vehicle is safe for consumers. And they're the thing that regulates when, when a recall or a service bulletin goes out uh, and, and is judged a recall or not, the recall being the critical one. But in the case of the, of the, of the Ducati uh, Multistratus, I mean, we're talking the same failure where the, the cracks would develop right where the pinch bolts were. Um, they judged it. Uh, Ducati's case was, this is not a safety problem. Even if these break, even if you ride the bike without the bolts in, and this is no BS, this is awesome, the, there's nothing wrong with the bike. It'll be fine. It's not optimal. It doesn't provide the same level of uh, structure, but it would never result in a crash or any problem. And they pled the case. They showed all the data. They went through the engineering exercise, and NHTSA said, okay, fair enough. That's just a technical service bulletin. And that meant from that point that it was an elective surgery, basically. So Ducati could say, well, that's just a TSB. We're going to do it to everyone that's in warranty, period because we're saying we want to do that. But if it's out of warranty, case-by-case basis, it's goodwill, right? In some cases, right? Depends on the depends on how the manufacturer does it. So some manufacturers will say, well, this is a TSB, and it's going to go for the life of the bike, period. Or they might say it's a TSB, and it only goes for uh, the, the warranty period. And then after that, it'll be case-by-case. Case. You, know? you never know. So it's an interesting thing that that one was able to go, even though most of us would look at that and say cracked metal parts, that's going to fail. That's going to be a problem. But I think it's awesome that they were a show. No. Yeah, it's a bad thing. And we're going to replace these. But it's not critical. And, and for me, as, as a person who would freak the F out if I had, you know, loose bolts on my pinch bolts holding my axle on my front wheel. You know, it's, it's interesting. Right? It's interesting. As someone is, who has to read these recall notices for a living. Sure. It is always interesting. There's always a line that explains how the whatever issue is happening with the motorcycle is a danger to the rider how it will result in a crash because there's always this line of and the fuel tank leaks fuel which could drip down and cause a fire which could cause serious injury to the rider or cause a crash yep that line is almost always in there because that's that's kind of like the defining factor of how is this in the end going to be dangerous to the motorcyclist or to the vehicle driver or to a passenger or whomever and that's that's kind of the yep. that's the water. That's what mark. makes a recall recall. Period. Yeah. And end of story. Right. So that's an interesting dynamic there. There's other 
there's other examples out there. I'm not going to be able to think of every single one of them, but and that was the most interesting one that there was two of the similar type mm-hmm. that were changed up, and I'd never seen anything like that before or since. Like recently, there was a recall on kickstands for uh, Multistrada, Ducati Multistrada, and I didn't know anything about it. I I just was in the shop and they were talking about it, and and a technician was kind of like, "Why would this be a recall?" It's like, well, imagine if you put your kickstand down and the bike fell on you. It, you never know what part's going to fall on you. It might cause you to die. Either either way, it might break your leg, or you might be pinned under the bike for a long time. You could be in the middle of nowhere. There's so many different things that could happen with just a kickstand. So they have to make that a recall, even though we look at it and it's like a bolter or a piece of metal that's bolted to the bike that holds it up, right? But it's it's still a pretty critical thing. But so it's interesting. That's that, that's part of recalls. Sure. So so to to move forward a little bit, uh, uh, a manufacturer spots something that's wrong tells NHTSA about it or comes to some sort of conversation with NHTSA, okay, recall needs to happen. So then what happens next? NHTSA gets the recall notice. Yeah, the, the, this is the, the part that, I, since I didn't do this part of it, I only watched it a bunch of times. It's very gray when the recall gets posted. It's almost at NHTSA's whim. They decide, you know, we, we have to inform them as a manufacturer. We would have to inform them. There's a duty. As soon as yeah. we know. And they would say, I mean, it's like within 24 hours of knowing we have to report this failure. Um, I'm not going to comment on that any further. I'll just say that that's what's supposed to happen, right? Doesn't mean it always happens. It's just that's you're right. That's the that's the directive from a legal standpoint, right? So if they found that, I've got a good story about that because when when I went through business school, my business uh, management professor, my first year, was the recall guy or was the safety guy at Ford during the Ford Pinto. Wow, okay. So he was, I mean, if you could kind of narrow it down, his name's uh, Dr. Denny Joya. If you could narrow down probably a single person in Ford, and you know, he does a great lecture about this uh, whole issue, and you, you really begin to see that that whole Ford Pinto exploding gas tank thing was an institutional failure. But if you really wanted to like get brass tacks, like point the finger at someone, it was probably him who was the most, I'm not going to say at blame, but had the most who's in the position most capable of preventing it. And, but it was interesting because you know, he talks about the internal struggle of, oh, well, this was a cheap car built to compete against the Japanese cars, and we knew when we built it it was a hunk of junk. And it, he uses the word it's a tin can. Like, How can you expect to get in an accident with this car and still be safe? You should know as a consumer that this is This was a guy teaching you? Well, you know, I think for him, he went through his own internal process, but uh-huh. he, he takes on the persona of himself back yeah. during that time, which the, is the very guy counting the numbers saying, Hey, you know what? If 20 people die because of this and we get sued 10 times, it'll be way cheaper than replacing all these cars. So let's just let that happen. Well, that was kind of the part of it, but also there's this idea too of like, okay, well you hit this car at any point, you know, whether it be the rear bumper or the front bumper or the side, like it's going to do something. It's going to fall apart because it's just a cheaply yeah, but it's poorly not built immolate you right but that's but this is this is the point this is this is the institutional point where they're saying like hey this is just a cheap car what do you expect this is only going to affect huh. you know even if 200 of these things catch on fire we made 200,000 of them so like the payout is it's actually cheaper just to pay the families whatever their damages oh, are oh. than it is to recall them you know yeah and sure. that's and that's why they ended up getting slammed at sure. the end of the day by the courts and getting you know, um, just massive penalties and criminal misconduct. It was the first, I think it was the first company to ever have a criminal misconduct. 
Um, you mean a car company? No, I want to say it was a corporation. I mean, I, I'd have to go back and look That'd at the notes, uh, notes of the sure. case because I don't have it at my fingertips. But I just remember it changed the way manufacturers viewed their liability. And a lot of you know how recalls are handled now is because of that. Yeah. With this idea of like, okay, you can't just do a cost-based analysis on what's cheaper and all that. It's a safety issue. It doesn't matter if it's one or 100000 You issue a recall. You got to get it out there. You go through NHTSA. You have certain obligations. You have certain duties to report. And then that re, that notice goes to NHTSA, and eventually, I you know in my dealings with NHTSA too, it does seem kind of just ambiguous on when that post. Whenever they're going to do it. So it in this just, case with the Yamaha, the first thing I asked you was, yeah, where did you find this on NHTSA web? Because that's usually the what the people break the news is the dealers are going in to look for, at the VIN of you name the bike, right. or they're on some other website and they see that there's a recall. And, and I should say Yamaha has an internal website where you can check VINs. Sure, sure. And it'll bring up whatever recalls it has. So sometimes the recall will post or a, or a service bulletin will post and it'll be happenstance that a dealer personnel will happen to be looking up a VIN that it applies to and they see this. They don't know anything about it because it hasn't been released yet and they would call the service rep, me. I'd say, oh, I don't know anything about that. Or, <laughs> you know, I do know about that, but it's not released yet. Hold tight and I'll get that information for you. And that was always the problem was this in between. It's like, well, here's the system telling the, the customer that there's a recall. And very rarely would a recall get into this without us being ready. But every once in a while, something like that would I was, happen. I was going to say that because I've gotten definitely some feedback. Uh, I don't know if it was Ducati or not, but I can, I can remember a couple of dealers, a couple of manufacturers giving me grief over publishing NHTSA recall notices because they hadn't gotten their people notified yet and that's to my response would be first of all i'm, I'm publishing public knowledge yeah i'm coming from a government website absolutely two that's on you to get your people well and that was the that was the problem is that we we there was this one person at nitsa it's at his whim or he is held to task by this you know this past 10 years of you know uh, toyota accelerator problems or sure. the Ford Explorer or you name the, the <laughs> all the different problems that they're so hyper about making they're vigilant they're like they have to get it out there because then it absolves them of they can wipe their hands of it like they've done it even though the recall isn't they can't do any literally the dealerships can't do anything about it but they've posted it but that, that's right? funny you bring up the the Ford Explorer that was the Ford Explorer with the I believe the Firestone tires yeah that's that's one of the few times I've seen a manufacturer knowing or yeah a manufacturer see like oh that was the supplier's fault that was that was this because usually they're pretty good about not sure. saying bill because like like you said with the the wheel on the Ducati like that was probably what was it Anki or, or Marcus Senior whomever it was, it was, it was either Brembo or Anki and I don't know which yeah. one so whatever whoever it, whoever it was yep but usually it's just it's a Ducati recall. All right, so NHTSA then just puts it up there. So sometimes you'll get this, and I'll see it on asphalt and rubber before the rest of the world knows, and then I'm getting calls from dealerships saying, what's going on with this? And I have to say, I'm sorry, we don't have this released yet. I don't have the part that you need yet. Uh, we're just going to have to deal with this on a case-by-case -case basis. And usually within days, we've we've got the solution nailed if it has gotten to the point where NHTSA knows about it, right? Right. So... Often, though, the, the, the manufacturers, I think, know about it well ahead of time and they get everything sorted and figured out where they've changed the, the, the part that needs to be changed and they get it you know, put into the system and then they say, okay, it's ready, we're releasing a recall. Now, in the case of last year or two years ago when BMW had this weird 
shock problem. What was that? That was the oh the R twelve hundred RT. It was the yeah. electric suspension. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting one because boy, were they. And this goes into the BMW world. Well, I want to talk about That's that. A whole I want to talk thing. about that next. But I'll say that they preemptively struck the hell out of that. And they had to do a stop sale. And that's the weird thing about this R1 deal is that a stop sale is like the the most extreme, right? So well, yeah. So my, my understanding is, so this is a stop sale, but then there's a stop sale, stop, don't ride as well. Like there's like one more oh, echelon. And, yeah. that, and that was what the BMW one was. Is they came but, out and said like, you got one of these in your garage, do not get on it. Yeah. So this seems to be Yamaha's and them saying like, well, don't sell any more bikes. We want to get this sorted yeah. out. Yeah. Apparently, if you've got one, right, you know, until we get the recall going, you can still keep riding yours. Because I haven't seen this says anything to alert consumers that you shouldn't ride your motorcycle. Sure, but the the information I have is it's a stop sales, which is just that that's really extreme though. Because then you've got still, all these dealers right. livid because they have this thing uh, for that they're paying money on, um, or that they have bought that they can't sell. Right. At least, thankfully, it's 2015 bikes, and we're in November 2015 right yeah, now. Sure. No. Almost in December. No, for them it's okay. BMW, that thing had barely even gotten to the right. dealerships. Right. There was a few of them out there. Right. So the the way BMW had to handle that was was intricate, and we can get to that later on. Absolutely. But that's part of the thing. It's like, how do they deal with it? What do you do? There's no recipe for this. Depends on the failure and what's going to happen. Well, in the case of BMW, the the reason you do a stop sale is you haven't figured out how. You're going to do it yet. There's either you don't have the part made yet that right, is going to fix the problem. They can't sell a vehicle that's unsafe for the road. Right. So they either can't they do a stop sale because they can't provide you with the part or they uh, don't know what to do. In the case of Yamaha, they're probably sitting there scratching their heads, figuring out, OK, we're going to ship engines to this amount of dealers. If the person bought the bike within 90 days, we're going to ship them an engine. But if if they bought it six months yeah. ago, we're going to do it. Uh, we're going to have it fixed or crunching you know, some numbers. Right. Yeah. They're figuring out how they're going to what the scheme is. Right. And BMW's case, they were like, nope, stop it. Nope. No, we don't. No, that's it. And then wait. And we're going to do this. And they I mean, oh, interesting. It's fascinating to see. But that is what marks a good manufacturers. It's not how good your vehicles are, or how awesome everything is when it's good. It's what you do once it all goes horribly wrong. So, so this is the interesting thing that came up on the discussion on, on asphalt and rubber about it in the comment section was the, the perception of reliability or what brands are more reliable. And someone made a comment about all oh, that's, Oh, typical Yamaha's, you know, not being reliable. And, you know, my, my, and I love it when someone's like, well, I had this bike and it did this. And <laughs> yeah, you're like, right? okay, well, you realize you have to like understand like your logical arguments and saying like, well, that's, that's an anecdotal evidence. Like you, you have sure. a sample size of one. Yeah. You know, I can prove anything with a sample size of one. So, but you know, that idea of, you know, what brands are more reliable, you know, we don't have great data on that, but we do have consumer reports, which, which does some interesting things. And, and it's kind of what you would expect as far as, um, what the perceptions are in the marketplace. Obviously, the Japanese have a very big reputation for uh, reliability. The Europeans less so. Maybe American brands even even lower. And, and when you go and you look at Consumer Reports, lo and behold, Yamaha Star motorcycles are number one with uh, 11% failure. And then you see Suzuki, Honda, Kawasaki are right behind them. Um, 
Kawasaki's at 15%, Suzuki, Honda share 12%. So you have this kind of like echelon. It'd be of, interesting to find out what they're considering a failure as well. Sure. But let's just say there's even the, if it's global, whatever. And there's enough to be said about consumer reports and its sample size, yeah. but it's, it's it's interesting data points. It passes the smell test. It's interesting to see victories kind of in there as well at 17% fail rate. So yep. you're going to have like this first band. And, I, and my argument on Osvaldo Rubber was, I think you'd be really hard pressed to, to make a big difference between no, the Japanese brands. No, you can't. Uh, but Not we, now. You probably could have in 1989, yeah. but not now. No, now they've got it. They kind of figured it out, and then I think you can make your next your next tier with the European brands, and you have your your Triumphs and Ducati uh, kind of in there. Harley Davidson's well, what, kind of in there. So, out of curiosity, what is Triumph saying? Triumph is 29 percent, Ducati 33 percent, BMW 40 percent, KM 42. So that's where you start getting into this interesting idea of, you know, Japanese engineering, German engineering, yep. Italian engineering. Yep. And it and, kills me. It kills me. Because a lot of those fallacies or sorry, a lot of those kind of like those, a lot of those perceptions aren't necessarily true, aren't necessarily accurate. But the reason we kind of have those kind of ideas in our head is possibly because of how the brands deal with issues with Absolutely. their motorcycles. And because the interesting thing is like, so you see BMW, like 40% failure rate, you know, and I, and I see a lot of these recall notices and like BMW definitely carries a large portion of them. They king. have, they're king at it. For I sure. mean, part of it too is like, you know, you have 200,000, almost 200,000 units out in the market. You're going to have, you know, some, some stuff going on. You have a lot of models. Yeah. But not 40%. But yeah. But then, so you see that I mean, 40%. That's the weird thing you were just know. talking about. The numbers, it's like it doesn't matter about sheer numbers. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, percentage. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm getting to. But like you kind of expect it in a way. But but the idea that uh, there was an interesting survey, how many BMW BMW owners would buy another BMW? And it's like 80, 90% because of things like this recall with the RT. And we saw some recalls with the GS. With the RT, it was so interesting with electronic suspension. You know, stop sale, don't ride. And you know BMW dealers were giving out loaners. We'll buy your bike. Buy the bike. Buy the bike. There was a scheme to buy the bike there back was a through whole... a third party. It was all kinds of amazing things. You had three to, options to when you came into it. a BMW dealership on what you wanted to do and how BMW can make that right. And it included buying the bike back, giving you X amount of dollars in BMW parts and accessories and apparel, uh, getting you back on the road with a loaner. You know I mean, it was or trading it in in some cases, yeah, right? Towards another model, sure. Uh, so you know, it's really interesting and very impressive in that way on on how a brand takes care of its consumers and what that does to its perception versus its reality, and how the dealers deal with it. So in some cases, the dealers, I had one dealer in Colorado was like, "Yeah, they handled that awesome. I'm stoked. That was great." I was, I did this and I did this and I had one customer was this and they, it was effusive about it. Like, this is amazing. I'm like, oh, that's great. Then I had another one in the Seattle area, those assholes and they did this and they did this. And it was really interesting to see the the differences between the dealers themselves. Cause each dealer is like a little unique personality Sure. for the most part. Unfortunately, they are not McDonald's and for the Euro brand specifically, they're not a, you're not going to get a big Mac every time you go. Although right? they're trying to change that. Right? I know, I know. And that's a big thing of what's going on for, especially the Euro dealers, the Triumph, the Ducati, the BMW, but BMW has been doing this heavier for longer. So they started probably in the mid two thousands, really hammering shitty dealers, right? Getting them out of the network and doing all kinds of things to, to make sure that there was corporate identity and, you know, basically making, making McDonald's and Starbucks yeah. out of each one trying. Right. And they did pretty, they have done a much better job than any other brand, I think. But, but after the economy tanked, 
the the fallacy was that you know most of those dealerships that became single brand BMW could not make it. They could not be a single brand. So in the past five years, you're seeing a lot of commingling of BMW Ducati, BMW Triumph, or all three, or maybe KTM thrown in there every once in a while. They're banding together because it's Euro brands. And that's a fascinating thing to watch. Now, but back to the percentage thing, blows my mind that Ducati is that close to Triumph. Um, I, I'm, I'm impressed because Triumphs have a pretty good reputation. I, I had thought in the past couple of years, there's been a few issues cropping up, but it's interesting that those two are separated so, so far from the BMW, but it doesn't surprise me at all from a BMW standpoint, having had to go into these dealerships and destroy warranty parts and all the warranty parts are kept in the same place as the other manufacturers. And there'd be like this wall of BMW crap. <laughs> right. This huge wall. And I'd always look at it like, man, am I glad I'm not a BMW rap because all the Ducati stuff I'd be able to get through pretty quick. And I'd see this huge thing. It's like, oh, my gosh. Or when a recall comes out, say that rear wheel, there was like a spindle thing that happened this year mm-hmm. well, and the fuel pump fuel uh, sending unit issues. And the poor technicians are inundated with these things and just constantly having to work on them. And they get all poopy and you know, they're like, yeah, I just finally, after my 10th one, I was able to make the time that they're going to pay me for. Right? <laughs> and you're like, Oh my gosh, it's so painful. Whereas Ducati to their credit with when certain recalls come out, a good example would be, uh, it's not a recall, but it was a TS, a technical service bulletin for the heat shields on a Panigale. We were paying a lot for that, like a lot of time. And the, the technicians didn't have to sweat it because it was a kind of like, all right, our bad. The bike gets hot. We're going to put this stuff on here. Uh, so we're going to pay you quite a bit, I think. I can't remember if that's the exact example, but we've done a few things where that, that we had done a few things where that would make it so that the dealerships don't get angry at you, which is part of the circle here that we're dealing with. It's not just the manufacturer straight to the consumer. You are dealing with the, the sieve is the dealer network which is arguably the worst part of all of this is that there's the inconsistencies with the dealers and how they're managed and how the manufacturers uh, come across to each dealer and how the, what the problems are. It's a fascinating dynamic that's unfortunately very problematic. It's a huge issue. It's a huge issue in the motorcycling space. It's a huge issue in the automotive space. This is why Tesla wants to own its own dealerships because we should preface that there's laws against this. Sure. And that's a huge issue in the space. Why? I mean, <sighs> I mean, do I, what do you want? You want the technical reason? I well, mean, let's, let's, there's, there's a base it, it reason. Go, it goes back a long way, but it, it's. Why yeah. are there laws against having a manufacturer straight to, straight to. Why are there laws that some dealership in some states dealerships can't be open on Sundays? I mean, there's, there's some interesting, there's some interesting things in the space, but it's one of the things that I remember from, from my, from my technical background. Like that's the reason Apple has Apple stores because they they started out they were in like they had like a special section in Comp USA or they were in certain specialty shops that would only do Apple but for the most part they weren't in control of their customer experience. It's like we built the product, we put it in a box, and we send it out the door, and good luck to what happens next. And part of Apple's strategy when Steve Jobs came on board again was like, hey, we need to control this this all the way through the life cycle, all the way through the product cycle, all the way through the support cycle with the consumer because there's so much value there and there's so much uh, a part of our brand that's tangled up with the buying experience, the warranty experience, the, uh, the service experience, and all those other things. And it's interesting to watch the motorcycle industry kind of latch onto that where you see BMW, Honda, Triumph, or not Honda, sorry, BMW, Triumph, Ducati, KTM to some extent, so all these brands in some way are trying to control 
what the dealerships are looking like. You have to have certain branding. It has to have a certain look. Ducati has a very specific kind of showroom design. And through their incentives, they try and get dealers to make their floors look that way. Their showrooms look that way. BMW is the same way. Triumph is the same way because they want that look and feel and they want special sections and all like that. And it's like, oh, well, we want your mechanics to come to our training program and be certified master techs because then we know that their customer is going to get a certain level of service when we go there. And, it, and you know, they're trying to do that, but they can't own the dealerships. And that's what Tesla, of course, is fighting because they want to own the the selling experience. They want to own that, that idea of, you know, if uh, I'm Ducati, I'd be very nervous in a way that someone who isn't necessarily Ducati is my point of contact with the consumer. You know, so sure. like when you go down to Moto Corsa, which is obviously a single brand dealership. So they're very Ducati in their experience, but you go and talk to, you know, Christian or Jason, the salesman there, they're not Ducati employees. They're Motor Corsa employees. Now they obviously do a really good job of what they do and they represent the Ducati brand well, but Ducati's level of control over that is very minimal. And I think that's, there's, there's a, there's, there's a level of control that's lost there. And more importantly, when you start going to dealerships that don't, don't necessarily have their act together, oh, it becomes a detriment are, to are the brand. There's a lot of, com- the, so the conflicting brands, right? Sure. And it could be Japanese to, to Euro, or it could be Euro to Euro, but it's a constant struggle. One year, the, these dealerships will be all Triumph all the time, and let the, the other brands languish, uh, whereas a... Uh, uh, the next year they'll do the exact opposite. So then you get this yo-yo roller coaster of, well, which which brand dealer am I going to go into next? And does it are they properly representing any one of the brands? And you watch the tide lower for all of them, right? Instead of raise for all of them, it's very depressing. Yeah, it's it'll be an interesting thing to watch. It's definitely something that's evolving. I think Tesla is really pushing the space as far as letting manufacturers own dealerships. Um, and, and we'll see if that trickles into the motorcycle space. I mean, I can see a brand like Ducati being really savvy and be like, we got to start having Ducati shops. Obviously there's going to be some issues with dealer franchises, sure. but that's something that I think over the next 10 years, we're going to see evolve. It's going to, it's going to be pushed more for sure. And I, for the good and bad, right? So certain dealerships that mom and pop shops in the middle of nowhere, they, they're going to suffer, right? Cause it's, it, it, it's not it's very difficult to justify being a dealership for a lot of these vehicles unless you're going to sell 30, 40, 70 of the of the bikes a year and if you're in, you know, not and not a, a a very populous area, right? So say Boise, Idaho. There's enough people there that you're going to sell a few Ducatis, but it's tough to justify being a dealer or yeah. Medford, Oregon. It's tough to justify, but you could sell bikes there. So the deal, uh, the, the laws are, are very strange about this. I, I'd love to see tiered dealership levels so that you could say, all right, I'm going to sell 10 Ducatis out of here, but you, you know, and I'm going to, I know that I'm only going to sell 10. So I'm going to not get as, as good of a deal as the big dealership in the city. And I'm not going to have to do all the retail identity and I'm not going to have to do this, this, and this. And you, so they don't get all the spiffs, but they at least could be a dealer and help service the people that live in that area that need it. Cause that's a, a barrier to sale for a lot of Ducati people, especially in the, uh, uh, large adventure touring is like, well, I don't, I can't, I don't have a dealer. From mm-hmm. Moto Corsa in Portland, I have to go all the way to Spokane, Washington, to you know, if I'm going east. And after that, Salt Lake City. And after that, 
oh, Minneapolis, if you're in the northern part, it's like unbelievable large spanses of land where there's no Ducati dealers. Heaven forbid your multi strider breaks down like in Montana. Exactly. You're, it's a huge problem. Okay, I'm going to have to ship it down to either Salt Lake City or go to Fort Collins, Colorado. <sighs> right, then that frustrates me, even though, even though I know that's mostly kind of like irrational in my head. Because I've also I've beaten the crap out of Ducatis in the middle of nowhere for so long, but I understand it. It's a barrier to sale, so that's that goes part to all this, right? But we're going off on a major tangent, and I think we might have to reel it in because we're about. I think we're I think we're just about out of time, but I think we I think we touched on all the major points with with how a recall happens, uh, the process that goes yep. into it before it becomes a recall, what the process that goes into it after it becomes a recall. Uh, hopefully. Um, in the next week or so, we can see some resolution with this Yamaha thing. Yeah. Hopefully, Yamaha will um, address the issue we'll, publicly. We'll cover the, what, what the end result is once that does happen. We'll have a little bit more of a conversation. Or if you have questions, please send them to us. Because there's there's this probably opens up a Pandora's box of questions oh, yeah. to people. So please, through the Facebook page, the Two Enthusiasts Facebook page, or whichever other way we have. Two ask, Enthusiasts at AsphaltAndRubber.com. Yep. Just ask a question. See if, if there might be something we can uh, help uh, make less foggy. Because it's interesting stuff to talk about. And I don't talk about it that much because not many people even give a crap, right? It, it's, one of those weird, it's one of those weird topics. Like, I don't think uh, if anyone's... You know, I think if we sat down and like, oh, what's going to be a really good show? Well, let's talk about recalls, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, let's get it. Let's get nitty gritty on sure. recalls. But it's a, it's a, it's an important thing in the industry. It's important safety wise. It's if you own motorcycles long enough, you're going to be affected by one of them. If you own a Ducati, you're definitely going to be. Stop it. <laughs> Uh, I haven't had a if, it, if it's a BMW, you have a 40% chance. <laughs> yeah, right. right? <laughs> well. But it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing on how uh, that manufacturer then takes care of you. And that's a huge part of what owning a vehicle is like. And it's, it goes into the brand experience. And, you know, like, I wouldn't think twice about buying a BMW. If yeah, okay, yeah, maybe it's gonna break down, but I know BMW is gonna back me up on With it. With a three-year warranty, they're gonna um, take care of me as long as. Because that's the end of the day, like for me, like I just want to be taken care of. Yeah. Like I've definitely had some issues with my Ducatis, and I've always gotten taken care of. Now maybe that's because I'm you know asphalt and rubber guy, and I've got some special no leverage, but no. I don't know. I don't really think. No, no, well, I don't really think it throws a lot of weight down. Yeah, in Cupertino. no, it, it doesn't. And I, and it's in all seriousness. There's a little bit here and there, but mostly it's like, no, if you would have been anybody else, we have to take care of everybody fairly equally. There's no, there's no, unless you'd have gotten like some sort of gnarly spiff, you know, I don't think so. Right. Over the years. Uh, so no, you, you, we, we know that the only way that we can move forward is to treat people well when bad things happen. Like I said, it's not when everything's going right where you're made. It's when it's horribly wrong and you have to come up with the solution or rise above it. Right. Yeah. And that's in life in general. Yeah. Right. I think with that, Quentin, uh, I will say follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, RSS. Thank you to everyone who has left reviews on iTunes. We, we, we've definitely been hammering you to do that, and you have responded with vigor and zeal. Thank you. Thank you. Love the zeal. Air high fives over the podcast to you on that. And um, I think we're looking forward to a good off-season of, of kind of interesting topics. So send us your, your thoughts and your feedback and your comments on what issues you want us to explore, and we'll get down to the nitty-gritty. Kickstands up. Yeah, still doing it. Later. Still in there. Good talk. See you out there. 
And don't give me that look, that tranny blowing look. I don't want you to, <laughs> I don't want you to do that to me. I couldn't, so, I couldn't resist that. I one. know, I know. I'm just don't you stop were, it. You were a slip of the tongue away from a completely different podcast. I, you know, the the slip of the tongue happens when you're blowing trannies. <laughs> <laughs>